0: Hello, my name is Jody Lee Mott, and welcome to Dream Gardens, where we talk up the kids' books we love. On this twice-monthly podcast, I interview other kids' books enthusiasts, such as writers, teachers, and librarians, about their own favorite children's books. The poem I'm gonna start off today's podcast is called How Big. It was written by J. Patrick Lewis from his poetry book, If You Were Chocolate Mustache. Uh, this was illustrated by Matthew Cordell. Uh, Lewis has written more than 50 books of poetry for children, uh, including such books as The Shoe Tree of Chagrin, which was illustrated by Chris Chaban, and this also won the Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators Golden Kite Award in 2001, and A Hippopotam Mustn't, and Other Animal Poems, and this was illustrated by Victoria Chess. He's also served as the nation's third Children's Poet Laureate from 2011 to 2013. How big? By J. Patrick Lewis. You were a kid, I was your pup. I got bigger as you grew up. When you were four, I was just two. I was twice as tall as you. Now you are twelve, and I am ten. I weigh more than you do, Ben. You are my owner, but I am in charge. You are my captain, I am your barge. You are a prince, but I am the king. I am the boss of everything. You're the conductor, but I am the train. You're a great kid, and I'm a great Dane. My guest today is Robert Kent, author of the middle grade book Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and creator of the blog Middle Grade Ninja. Rob also writes horror fiction for adults and conducts occasional writing workshops at the Indiana Writers Center. You can find Robert's website at www.middlegradeninja.com. Thank you for joining me today, Robert.
1: Hey, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Now, as I mentioned, you wrote this book, uh, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and I understand that there is another book uh, coming out in uh, that's a sequel to this as well. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the original book and uh, what we have look, to look forward to in the second book?
1: I'm uh, happy to. It's my favorite subject. Uh, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is a middle-grade novel Sci fi, and it is available as paperback or an audiobook, or the e book is actually free to download from any e book distributor and it's permanently free. So, whenever you're listening to this, uh, it's available. The sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, will be out Halloween of 2018. That one will not be free, but the e book of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is free to download right now. Uh, It's the story of 5th grader Ellicott Skullworth, who has always felt out of place at public school, and now he's tested into the Archimedes program at Latimer University. Uh, While in Latimer City, he's going to be living with his world-famous and insanely brilliant cousin, Banneker Bones, who is the 11-year-old inventor of robots. The problem is that Banneker doesn't want to share his room, and he's got an army of robots to make Ellicott miserable until he goes home. When the boys are ambushed by robot bees as big as cars, Ellicott's only friend is carried off and held for ransom. To rescue him, Ellicott has no choice but to partner with his maniacal cousin. Ellicott doesn't know what's worse, facing a hive of giant robot bees or spending more time with Banneker bones. It's a a science fiction adventure written like a comic book. Um, I've always uh, kind of called it uh, my version of Batman, if Batman were an 11-year-old biracial child, uh, it's very important to me. It's a multiracial family. I'm in a multiracial family, and we're always looking for books about family like ours. And so Banneker Bones was the a detective that my wife had always wanted to write about as a child. And when she grew up and she married a writer, she told me about it. And she had based the name Banneker on Benjamin Banneker, who was a famous African-American inventor. And her father used to drill her on African-American history or Black History Month flashcards. And so names from famous Black history figures are, are throughout Banneker Bones as kind of an homage to my wife. It's really it's a love story for my wife and my son. Uh, who's a biracial uh, child, and I want him to have a book about a boy that gets in wonderful adventures with robots. And as of uh, Halloween, he'll have two books.
0: Do you envision more and more books about this a set of characters and the situation?
1: You know, I've called it the and-then story because I I think of it almost as like when you're a kid and you get so excited about something that you say, and then this happened, and then this happened. There's always another and-then because something else is going to happen. And so absolutely, there is not a planned ending. There will be at least three books. Beyond that, I could very easily see a fourth, fifth, and sixth book. And they all end with cliffhanger endings because there's always going to be something exciting coming down the pike.
0: As I mentioned, you've created this blog the middle grade ninja blog and um, how did you get the uh, idea to create this and for um, people who haven't had a chance to visit it yet and see what's in it what would they what would they find there
1: if they were to go there they'd find interviews with more than a hundred different literary agents interviews with more than a hundred uh, authors many of my heroes I've always thought it was kind of my writer's notebook but I make it public uh, because I go out and I talk to authors that I would want to speak to so people like uh, as of uh, the airing of this podcast, we just had Louis Sakar on. Um, prior to that, we had Kate DiCamello earlier this year. Uh, we had Michael Grant uh, just a bit back, Bruce Corvo. We had uh, Lynn Reed Banks was one of my favorites because I was, I was so enamored of the Indy in the Cupboard when I was a child, but very excited to be able to go back and correspond with her and ask her my writing questions and also share the answers to those questions with the world. And then beyond that, uh, there are also guest posts from authors like uh, Hugh Howey, Marcus Sakey, some uh, folks that write adult fiction, my personal hero, Jack Ketchum, who writes adult novels, uh, Richard Adams, the author of Watership Down, just anybody that I might want to meet if I could in person, but I can meet them online and share that with my
0: readership. As well as writing for for kids uh, with the Banneker Bones books, you also write uh, short fiction, uh, horror fiction for adults. And I'm just kind of curious, sort of uh, switching author hats between writing for kids and writing for adults. What is that like? Is there a process in the switching or is it just an automatic thing Or, or what is it like to actually write for those different audiences?
1: Uh, well, the joke uh, answer is that when I write for children, I clean up my language. When I write for uh, adults, we we don't have any restraint that way. But honestly, it is more difficult to write for children uh, because I can write a longer story for adults. Children have less patience, but they're far more willing to suspend their disbelief than adults. So, with a children's book, I can get away with a. Uh, somewhat more absurd premise that I maybe could pull off in even the most ridiculous of adult horror novels. And so when I go back through and when I write a, um, for children, my sentences and my paragraphs, if I have a paragraph that's more than three lines long, I start to really it has to justify itself to go to that fourth or fifth line. If I have a chapter that's more than two, two and a half pages long, I get I get a little bit wary that if we're going full, I might be losing some readership. Give them a break. Let's keep them going. Whereas with adults, I get a little bit more leeway there. Uh, and in fact, when I switch to writing for adults, and I, I do that for a longer period, like I've just done finishing up uh, a very long project, a five-volume horror series called The Book of David, Uh, Now that I've been coming back and focused on middle grade, I don't have that same luxury of pages to burn and uh, readers' uh, patience to stay with me through a um, a longer plot line. So there's a little bit more discipline that comes in when you're writing for children, uh, which I love.
0: As well as uh, writing and doing uh, the blog, you also occasionally uh, run writing workshops at, the, as I mentioned, the Indiana Writers' Center. Uh, what are these uh, sort of workshops or a uh, person attending them, or what might they look forward to?
1: Uh, with the most recent writer's workshop, we did what I would have wanted to be a workshop when I was young and learning to write. Uh, I uh, We went for five weeks. And every week uh, that we had a small, a very small class, we kept it to, I think it was seven people total. Uh, and they could uh, submit between 2,500 and 5,000 words every week. They were writing every week. They got emails from me every day that they were sounding off on to hold themselves accountable to the group to make sure that they were writing and hitting their goals. I mean, the hardest part of writing is applying your seat of your pants to your seat of chair and actually getting the new writing done. Uh, so you can get past that and then you're coming in and you're learning to take criticism from your fellow authors. That's going to make you much stronger when it comes time to taking your, your baby out in the world. And now you're facing reviews from, you know, Goodreads and Amazon and all of the Internet. It's much better to get some of those criticisms from somebody that's friendly and in-person and while there's still a time to make those changes before you're hearing them from the wider world.
0: Now, the book you chose as one of your favorite kids' books is the uh, middle grade novel The Witches by Roald Dahl. It was originally published in 1983 by Jonathan Cape in London and also illustrated by Quentin Blake. It is a very well-known novel for readers, if they're out there, uh, who actually haven't had a chance to uh, read The Witches yet. Can you tell them a little bit about uh, what it's about? Uh, first of all, go re- go read it. <laughs> read it as fast as you can. You don't
1: want to miss this one. Uh, it is the scariest middle grade novel I have ever encountered. Uh, and that's probably one of the reasons that I now write horror in addition to middle grade is because this book got to me uh, when I was just the perfect age for it. I read it in the fourth grade. Roald Dahl caught me from, from when I'm a child and now has brought me into adults with this novel. And it is a... Um, A story about a boy and his grandmother who learn that there are real witches in the world that are conspiring to kill as many children as they possibly can. And not harm, not temporarily inconvenience children, but kill children. The stakes in this are extremely high, and they, throughout the course of the novel, have to come together and find a way to turn this witch's evil plans on themselves. And serve out an appropriate amount of revenge uh, So probably the best way to tell you about the witches Is to just let Raul Dahl do it If I could go ahead and just read you This is, I'm a sucker for a great opening for a story Because I think the opening is the most important part If you don't nail the opening, don't worry about the middle of the end And I think this is just maybe the greatest opening all of middle grade fiction uh, So here we are, chapter one, A Note About Witches in fairy tales, witches always wear silly black cats and black cloaks, and they ride on broomsticks. But this is not a fairy tale. This is about real witches. The most important thing you should know about real witches is this. Listen very carefully. Never forget what is coming next. Real witches dress in ordinary clothes and look very much like ordinary women. They live in ordinary houses and work in ordinary jobs. That is why they are so hard to catch. A real witch hates children with a red-hot, sizzling hatred that is more sizzling and red-hot than any hatred you could possibly imagine. A real witch spends all her time plotting to get rid of the children in her particular territory. Her passion is to do away with them one by one. Even if she is working as a cashier in a supermarket, or typing letters for a businessman, or driving around in a fancy car, and she could be doing any of these things, her mind will always be plotting, and scheming, and churning, and burning, and whizzing, and fizzing, and murderously bloodthirsty thoughts. Which child, she says to herself all day long, exactly which child shall I choose for my next squelching? A real witch gets the same pleasure from squelching a child as you would get from eating a plateful of strawberries and thick cream. She reckons on doing away with one child a week. Anything less than that, then she becomes grumpy. One child a week is fifty-two a year. Squish them and squiggle them on, make them all disappear. Uh, and skipping ahead here This is my favorite part of this note about witches So Rob tells us She might even, and this will make you jump She might even be your lovely school teacher Who is reading these words to you at this very moment Perhaps she is smiling at the absurdity of such a suggestion Don't let that put you off It could be part of her cleverness I am not, of course, telling you for one second That your teacher actually is a witch All I'm saying is that she might be one Gotta love that opening. That uh, If that doesn't endear an author to a child's heart, I don't know what will. Can you imagine a teacher reading that and the kids are giggling? Look, oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, so he brings us in, and this is uh, very much uh, sort of a conspiracy theory for children, <laughs> that these real witches are out there plotting against us at all times.
0: The center of this book, you know, amongst all the strange goings on and all these witches, is this relationship between this um, young boy narrator, who I don't think is ever really named, and his grandmother, who's this very larger-than-life character. And what is it that their relationship brings to the book? How it anchors the book?
1: It's really it's the heart of the novel from start to finish. Because I mean, we open with this boy and his grandmother, and we close with them. Uh, and it's certainly one of the things that drew me to the book originally because I had a very similar relationship with my grandmother. Uh, I would stay with her a lot when uh, my, my parents were working, and she would tell me ghost stories and stories about flying saucers. And she kind of got me uh, started on, on the path to horror author from Young. And I, I feel the same uh, about this boy who doesn't have a name. I've, I've looked and looked for it, and they give him one in the movie, but Raul Dahl never gave him an official name. Uh, and grandma is also sort of the protagonist for the start of the story because the unnamed boy he doesn't really have a traditional goal he's not taking any actions Toward that goal, until almost midway through the story, when circumstances force him to come up with the goal and tell that he's kind of a victim of circumstance. But his muse, I'm sorry, his grandmother is actively taking steps in his life better. Uh, right off the top, doll kills both of the boy's parents, which is pretty common for raw doll books example i i don't think that james and the giant peach really needs james's parents to be dead for him to get on a peach and go have an adventure but doing that really makes us feel sympathetic for james right at the top and we don't have to worry about his parents later and same thing here because he kills those parents and we get to see grandma take over custody for the boy we get to see how they rearrange their lives to suit each other and form this new parental bond that, that the boy needs He set us up with characters that we're willing to to fight for and and root for until the end of this novel, regardless of all the opposition they're about to face, which is a lot. I wanted to point out it's significant, I think, that it is a grandmother character for the boy and not a grandfather character. One of the complaints about the novel is that it does tend to invoke sexism, that there's this, this boy who's afraid of all these women. But the two strongest roles in the book are women. There's the Grand High Witch, and then there's Grandma. And Grandma is a direct force of good in opposition to the evil of the Grand High Witch. Uh, now, that's undercut a little bit later by a more problematic passage near the, the very end of the novel. I'd just like to put this right on Main Street, uh, right here at the end. The boy tells her, there's no way an English policeman is going to believe that you are the head of the Norwegian police. And her response is, I am very good at imitating a man's voice, she said. Uh, and if this were in the you know the 40s or the 50s, you'd say, well, that's that's, that's the time that, that they were in. 83, yeah, that's pushing it a little bit on that one. That hot grandpa moment there at the end. But despite that, we really do have this this strong female character, uh, and really strong, evil female characters. And so with uh, with raw dull books, when we're looking at these novels, when we look backward, we're going to see less progress just by definition of the fact that our books now have things that people, I'm sure, 10, 20, 30 years from now will think are, are absurd and are unkind. So we can't write off what I consider to be classic literature because it does have that problematic line. And I also think that's a good opportunity for modern children to talk with them about that. And I don't know, you were a teacher. How would you incorporate that? Or how would you talk to your readers through
0: that? I think certainly making it part of a conversation, you know, bringing up the line and asking the kids about it and what are are their opinions about it? Or maybe even better, how would they rewrite the line? If they were the editor for this book, what would they do to rewrite this line? That's always good to turn something into a writing exercise. That's a (laughs) wonderful idea. You can't you can't skip it, but boy, you don't want to throw out a
1: book as great as this or the collected works are all well dull just because of a few problem passages.
0: I want to go back a little bit to the passage that you read, because he does go, and you said you just read a part of it, and he does go to... Great lengths to, to list these various characteristics of witch. And I think they're very unique to this book. It's not something you commonly find in other descriptions of witch, but he, he, he does go into great length into describing, you know, how to um, recognize a witch. And what do you think his purpose is in going to so much detail? Oh, well, part of it, I'm convinced, is just because
1: it's it's, it's plain fun. It's, it's fun for him, I think, and it's fun for us. For example, we don't need to know all the details of how the Formula 86 delayed action mouse maker formula works, but he's going to take us through the whole recipe just because I think those are kind of fun details for him to lay down. So, for example, in that, there's a telescope that you boil soft. There's 45 brown mice that you're going to chop off tails and fry until crisp you're going to simmer mice and frog juice for one hour, then you need to add an alarm clock so that the the potion goes off at the right time. So those are all details that, strictly speaking, we don't need to to be convinced that this this, uh, magic formula is going to work, but I think he has fun including those. And with the details specifically about the witches, one, these are extremely specific details, as you mentioned. There's Uh, The fact that their witches are all going to be wearing gloves because they don't have fingernails. They have curvy claws like a cat. They're going to have a wig because every witch is bald. Their nose holes are slightly larger than nose holes of regular women. Uh, You have to look carefully at their eyes because there's just a little black dot there instead of a pupil. And that black dot changes color. And they don't have toes. They just have squared off feet. So they're always uncomfortable in, in shoes. Uh, they can't wear special square shoes because that would give the game away. And the uh, the fun of that is if you're a child, especially in the 80s when this was written. I remember there was a lady in my church that uh when I when I, I, I shortly after I read this book, I saw her and she had gloves on and I was like, oh! "Oh, and I was checking her hair, I wanted to see if it was a it was a wig. How she walked, making sure that her toes weren't missing. Uh, and then of course the next Sunday she didn't wear gloves and I was a little bit really, but still suspicious for, for some time to come. So I think that's an aspect of it where a child reader can take those details and apply it in the real world. But the other thing, just from a, a plot perspective, where that comes in, in handy is we learn these details about how to spot these witches, but then, uh, not what, 40 pages later, our boy is going to be in a hotel room where the Society, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty, Against children comes in and all these these nice women have got gloves on and they're itching at their scalps. And these are the little details that we want the uh, I think Dahl wants the reader to get to the improbable conclusion before he does that oh my gosh, an entire group of witches has surrounded our hero.
0: Along with the the character we talked about, the grandmother and the son, the other uh, major character in the book is the grand high witch, and she's a she's a really great villain. But if you think about, it, it's funny she is uh, she doesn't have a backstory, she's not complicated. Her motives are pretty straightforward. There's no underlying sort of a secret uh, motive that she's not revealing until the end. She wants to do exactly what she says she's going to do, but she's still a great villain. What makes her such so such a memorable and great evil character
1: oh man she is just the best isn't she she's basically an evil batman i've been thinking about this she's rich she's driven she's she's singular in her purpose i mean she's by far the most goal-oriented person in the entire novel uh, at least until toward the end when when grandma and the boy uh turn things around on the witches she's got superpowers she wears a mask she's living this fascinating double life uh, and most importantly she's never played for laughs even when she is a spoiler, even when she is uh, being dealt out her proper vengeance and being turned into a mouse, that is still played scary all the way up until the end. And she's really, really bad because she knows who she is. She is uncompromising. You can't talk her out of her plan. You know, She's not one of these characters like the Grinch where she's going to have some revelation and maybe, maybe if the boy just says the right things to her, she's going to turn it around. She wants to kill kids, and she's okay with adults dying. She, at one point when she's telling her witches about, you're going to take this formula that turns all the children into mice uh, so that they can be dealt with by their parents and by uh, anybody who, who has a problem with mice, uh, one of the other witches asks, well, what happens if an adult takes this medicine? She says, well, that's too bad for the adult, so she has no feelings for that. She's even killing other witches. Um, in fact, when she starts her meeting, she's, she's walking around like Al Capone with that baseball bat in the Untouchables, you know, doing it with uh, lasers out of her eyes. Uh, and she gets to talk at long lengths and no one stops her. Uh, she gets to say things that are fun and she says them in a fun accent. Things like remove your vigs, witches of England. She's always screaming. She's always snarling uh, on my uh, my review of the book at, at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, I posted a video of this little girl in England, and shes I think she's doing a school project, but she's dressed up like the Grand High Witch, and she is just playing the heck out of that role and reading those lines and just chewing the scenery. I mean, if you were going to do this as a play, forget Grandma, forget the boy, the Grand High Witch, that's the role you want to play. And that's probably why the most famous person in the movie version was Angelica Houston, because that Grand High Witch, that's the role you want
0: so the plan is pretty straightforward they're they're going to turn children into mice and and get rid of them and that's uh why they're all these this covenant of witches is is meeting to uh put this plan into action i'm wondering kids who hear or read this book uh might think to themselves well this doesn't sound too far-fetched to me i know adults like this uh do you think some kids might have that kind of reaction to the book as well that uh this is not such a crazy idea that the craziest idea i've ever heard
1: i absolutely i think that they might have that reaction and you know what they're not they're not wrong (laughs) Uh, because metaphorically i mean the children are, are just little people they've got eyes uh, they can see that the world is scary. There are scary things and scary people in it. Uh, and more, there are uh, actual conspiracies in the world. Maybe not the flying saucer stuff my grandmother told me about, but there are uh, clear and present conspiracies. For example, just looking around and trying to figure out who decides who gets to be, uh, who gets to grow up poor, who gets to grow up rich. Uh, I was just listening to a senator today talking about the issues of the um, Koch brothers uh, funding. Fronts to uh, sort of undermine legislation and, and basically make things a little bit more fair, uh, I'm sorry, a little less fair for everyone else to the really benefit exclusively of the rich. And they call those uh, foundations things like the Freedom Foundation, Freedom Partners, Americans for Prosperity. And I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, oh, that definitely sounds quite a lot like the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Uh, but, but even beyond that, just in, in everyday life, you, you can see examples of conspiracies that are working against people for who's going to get preferential treatment in school. Uh, racism is still a thing, unfortunately. Anywhere there's people, you're probably going to see some aspect of racism left over, and children are keen to pick that up as well, especially when this was published in 1983. And there are adults who legitimately hate children for whatever reason or another, maybe because they've spent too long working in a, a public school. When I read this book originally as a child, part of what really endeared dolls uh, was because he was a writer that was that was brave enough to present this basic truth that you can 't trust all adults and he wrote about something that was genuinely scary a lot of times uh, with a middle grade novel for for a horror story. They call it whore, but it's a little bit more pedantic. It's you think you're gonna get a vampire, but you get Benicula. which eh, that's too bad for the carrots that Benicula drains for blood, but it's not really scary. Whereas Roald Dahl, you know, it got fantasy trappings and he's dressing it up a bit, but this is a story at its core about adults that want to hurt children. Not all, but a core group.
0: And so this is a very dark novel in many many ways, and he sort of goes to the line: What is it about it that still makes it a kids book?
1: Right, it's a good question,
0: and I think it's a a horror novel first, and a
1: um, kids novel second. I you know Ral Dahl wrote quite a bit of horror uh, for adults. He wrote uh, one about a, a man that that beats his victims with a leg of lamb. Ah, oh, classic stuff. <laughs> But uh, this is a horror story where I think that because he wanted the witches to turn into mice, he couldn't quite make that an adult appropriate uh, story. And I I run into this with my own situation. when I'm trying to decide, do I write uh, my next story? Is this for adult horror or is this for middle grade? And if it's UFOs and flying saucers, I could pass that off for adults. But if it's giant robot bees, that's more middle grade territory secret society of alligator people you have to jump through a lot of hoops to get an adult to go along with that whereas a kid they're there from day one like yeah i was just finishing teenage mutant ninja turtles and now you've got you've got the alligator people from the sewer fine uh in the case of the the witches those prose, no matter what he's writing is always a delight and he is uh, rhyming throughout. He is uh, There's constant absurdity and humor. Despite the darkness of the novel, there is sort of a, a lighter feel to large sections of it to give us kind of a break from the story. And like I say, although this is about adults hurting children, the way that they're hurting it is fantastical and softening. You know, I mean, the kids are uh, being turned into pheasants right before hunting season. Uh, they're being turned into slugs to be stopped. Uh, they disappear into uh, paintings, none of which is something that uh, I would want to happen to me. But as we're reading the story, that 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 fantasy gives us a um, a sense of safety because we're one step removed from any actual violence.
0: Now It's funny, when I was rereading this novel, uh, uh, along with the horror aspects, uh, one thing that struck me is, in some ways, it reminded me of a heist plot that you see sometimes in movies, where the characters get together, they develop this elaborate plot, they let the audience know, you know, that we're going to do A, B, C, and D. And then, of course, the plan is put into action. There's always complications; something always goes wrong. Uh, And that happens in this book, Uh, the grandmother and the son, they make a plan about what they're going to do to thwart the witches. And they put it into action and of course it doesn't go exactly uh right but uh, they do that and i don't know is it just me that sees this or did you see that and i guess what's the appeal of sort of laying things out and then seeing how they go
1: uh it absolutely is a, uh, a heist high and it is a perfectly executed high spot you you compare this to the best of the genre uh, either of the ocean's elevens <laughs> my gosh it will stand up neck and neck with them uh, the adherence to some of those chorus of the highest plot puts the bones in place uh, so that Dahl can really talk about some of the things that I'm convinced he wants to talk about. Uh, he really does want to talk about this relationship between the boy and his grandmother. Uh, for whatever reason, obviously, I don't know. I speculate that's because he was remembering his own grandmother or somebody in a grandmotherly role that meant something to him. Uh, but who knows, maybe he just uh, he had a grandson, or maybe he just imagined in his heart and really wanted to share it for whatever reason. That's, I think, what he wants wants to leave us with, is these characters. He wants to scare people. But the heist plot gives us a clear from point A to point B, we know what to expect. And there is a thrill in seeing the Grand High Witches plot laid out, as absurd as it is, it is it is kind of fun and clever to imagine that she's going to turn all of the children in England and eventually the world uh, into, uh, into mice and then have uh, mice captures and, and the rest do away with them. That's a fun plot. That's interesting to hear. And then the counterpoint that the boy is spoiler, I suppose, going to take that same formula and turn it back against the witches is very rewarding. We want to see these witches suffer a bit because they are so evil. They do have uh, such plans. The downside, of course, uh, is because he's done that, and, and and there's very little fat on this novel, it's, it's very straight, set up, payoff takes out the most of the, the, all of the witches, I believe in England uh, here at the end, and then he, uh, the boy finds the I'm sorry the grandmother uh, finds the Grand High Witches address books for all the other witches in the world and they're going to go after them next. He's sort of eliminated the possibility of sequels, which I've always thought was too bad because this, this could have been a wonderful series.
0: Now, uh, you mentioned earlier about the the movie that was made from this, uh, the movie directed by Nicholas Rogue, and I usually don't uh, bring up uh, movie adaptions and how they compare to the book, because I like to focus on the book itself, but I want to talk about one very small part of the movie and a change they made, uh, and, and specifically, it's uh, at the very end where, in the movie, the narrator, is who is a mouse, is changed back into a boy, whereas in the book... He remains a mouse. And I'm wondering what you thought about that change.
1: Uh, You know, I've softened on this point a little bit. Uh, If you had gotten The Witches in in the fourth grade and decided it was my new book to live by, uh, I was deeply and horrifically offended when the movie came out because the, the little boy is a mouse and he gets to be turned back into a real boy, which is a fair ending. I'm a little less romantic. Now as adult, than when I was a child, what Dahl does in the novel, he allows, he tells us this boy is going to be a mouse forever. His grandmother hires uh, carpenters and and works to invent little things to make his life more easy. But he's going to be a mouse and he's not going to live very long. They make it very clear, although this is, you know, the first known instance of a uh, little boy that's now going to live as a mouse. I don't know for certain what his life expectancy is, but based on the life expectancy of mice, which they also assume is likely to be the life expectancy of grandma. And the little boy is not upset about this. He doesn't feel cheated. Personally, I might feel a little cheated because he gets his tail cut off with a carving a carving knife. And what's the point of living as a mouse if you're not going to have a tail? But... He's okay with that. His love for his grandmother and that relationship is so special to him that he's okay with the two of them having taken out the witches of England. They're going to go out in this grand uh, hurrah and kill as many of the witches, if not all, to save the world and sacrifice themselves to do it. And that's a very romantic ending. But now looking back on that as an adult who has a child, that's a little bit, it's a a trick of perspective now that, that I'm looking at it and I'm wondering, you know, this is a book about magic in which magical solutions had been presenting in the past. A couple of sentences and Roald Dahl could have, you know, he doesn't have to have a random witch show up. There are ways to restore the boy. Uh, I think he maybe was concerned that if he does restore the boy, we're told that grandma has health uh, issues relatively early in the novel. It's one of the reasons they're in the hotel in the first place instead of back in Norway. Uh, and there is a concern that, well, here's this orphan boy who's going to lose his grandmother and be an orphan all over again. But as an adult, I still think that's maybe not such a bad bending. But as a storyteller, I have to respect it because he gives the, the entire tale a little bit more weight because the... Uh, Actions that take place in the story have consequences. These are far-reaching effects that are going to impact the boy forever. And it's not heroic if he doesn't sacrifice to save all of us from these witches. So the romantic in me still kind of likes the ending that Dull has better than the movie.
0: Well, uh, Robert, thank you so much for giving me a chance to revisit this uh, novel. And thank you also for taking the time to uh, talk to me about it today.
1: This has been an absolute thrill. I love this novel. I could talk about it with you all night.
0: You can find Robert's website at www.middlegradeninja.com. Thank you for joining me on Dream Gardens. The theme music titled All Together is provided courtesy of Purple Planet Music. You can visit them at www.purpleplanet.com. Podcast cover art is provided by Creative Pro 180, courtesy of Fiverr, which can be found at www.fiverr.com. You can visit me at jleemott.com or follow me on Twitter at DreamGardensJLM. The Dream Gardens podcast is also available through iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, please comment, share, or subscribe. Until next time, keep dreaming, keep growing, and keep reading.